Parahato Samma Sambodhasa Namoetasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodhasa Bodhang Tamang Sangang Lamatsami a theme that's been um, kind of popping into my mind uh, repeatedly during the time of this retreat that I've it hasn't quite sort of popped enough to have uh, made me um, feel ready to talk about it however this evening we um, had some news of those of you who know Taranir that her mother um, has just passed away uh, last night and uh, so at the end of the evening we'll, we'll dedicate some chanting and uh, it seemed like an opportunity to uh, address the subject of old age, sickness and death Practically every group uh, that I've met with, uh, there have been um, several people who have been finding um, considerable physical discomfort and pain uh, during the time of this retreat. And also, uh, quite a few people have, have commented on just the um, awareness of the aging of the body. And I think when we're young, it's, it's a, something we don't actually really want to think about. We don't really want to acknowledge that this is something that might happen to us. I certainly didn't want to. I didn't even want to grow out of childhood. I, <laughs> I was very happy being six, seven, eight, nine, ten and then suddenly to find myself actually you know, physical changes happening and the body developing I, I just really didn't want to know I wanted to stay as a child like Peter Pan <laughs> and the idea that um, you know, one day I would get old was very um, distasteful And our society actually doesn't really help because um, there's a real um, emphasis on youth and vigor and beauty and physical uh, fitness and strength, all of these things. And uh, many, many products designed to keep us as fit and healthy and young as possible for as long as possible. It's something we really admire and uh, we celebrate sort of youth and vigor, strength. And uh, I remember, oh, it must be about eight or ten years ago, Noticing a slight sense of anguish, was it, I think it was, I don't know if the two people I, I'm thinking about I, I was seeing together, but um, there were a couple of people who I, I'd always kind of seen as being particularly strong and vigorous. Uh, one was somebody uh, who some of you may know of, someone called Trevor Leggett, who's a, um, someone who teaches uh, Zen um, in the... Um, Buddhist Society Summer School in, in, in England and uh, he was a black, black belt judo expert and much of his teaching he uses examples from, from judo 
And uh, another was a, a, a good friend of the community, who a, a woman who was incredibly fit and healthy, who used to kind of teach keep fit and they would walk very fast for miles and miles and miles. And, uh, almost at the same time, she developed ME and uh, was suddenly sick and couldn't do all the things that she had been doing. And Trevor Leggett had various physical ailments and he came to the summer school and he had to have an attendant to kind of help him get around and his eyesight was going and uh, he was suddenly an old man and I remember just this feeling of you know why can't they stay young <laughs> you know why, why can't they remain uh, fit and healthy and, and a sense of sorrow to notice this change that was happening to them And now obviously there are changes in my own body, in this body. There's quite significant physical changes. And uh, along with a slight feeling of not wanting to know, uh, there's also been a kind of sense of wonder. Um, at the, the nature of the body that kind of runs its own course uh, regardless of uh, one's uh, longings and desires and wishes. This body has, has its own cycles and rhythms uh, that we, we can't do very much about. I mean, there are medicines we can take and there are exercises we can do to uh, perhaps help keep it reasonably um, strong and healthy and, and supple. Uh, but it's actually fairly limited. And this is something that, that many of you have commented on, just the awareness of, of aging. I think we're all very fortunate to have discovered this practice and to have this regular encouragement to reflect on uh, this reality of our human existence. Because, as I said, there is a, a natural distaste, a natural unwillingness uh, to come to terms with these things, particularly, as I said, in this society. Uh, I think, in certainly, I, I'm not so familiar with um, Africa and Latin America, but my contact with Asian culture suggests that there's a generally much more skillful uh, attitude towards these things and uh, like in, in Thailand for example it's um, old age is something that is really very highly respected you know, older, older people are regarded as people who have more wisdom more understanding and uh, young people are actually trained to, to show proper respect for the elderly And in Sri Lanka, certainly, there's very often the tradition of just having the whole extended family living all together, you know, maybe three or four generations in one house. And each one has their place. You know, old age isn't something to be ashamed of or uh, looked down on in the way that it tends to be in, in Western culture. But the Buddha uh, reminded us repeatedly that having been born, we're subject to old age, the body is going to age, the body is going to sicken, and in inevitably it's going to die. And we, we might avoid old age, we might not get sick, but certainly 
there'll be the death of the body sooner or later. The only thing that we don't know is how or when. So it's very easy to imagine that maybe it won't happen, to live our lives as though it won't happen. And many people do this, so that when somebody close to them, somebody that they love, dies, uh, in some way, through some accident, illness, or simply through old age, um, it's received in a way as being a, a terrible shock. Something has gone wrong. Medical science has failed. The doctors have failed. <laughs> Rather than just seeing that this is what we can expect. The chant that Sister Tita Maida and I will do at the end of the evening for um, Tarania's mother is uh, a verse from the Dhammapada where it says something like um, all conditions are transient it is in their nature to arise and cease having arisen they will surely cease and with their passing there is peace that's a kind of very rough translation and I'm always struck uh, at Buddhist funerals I mean I haven't been to very many but the ones that I've attended at the incredible sense of um, peace and a kind of calm acceptance of, of the death uh, that seems to prevail this doesn't mean that there isn't sadness that there isn't grief but the overall mood uh, of these ceremonies of these times is just an extraordinary kind of peacefulness and there's always the encouragement on such occasions just to contemplate our own mortality and to use it as a teaching, you know, we often say that the, the final teaching um, of those who've died is just the very fact of their death. So rather than it being a, a disaster or a tragedy or a source of great anguish and regret, it's actually um, a time of um, a very rich time in terms of Dhamma. I think perhaps the things that make death particularly difficult are when um, we have unfinished business. There are things that we haven't said that we would like to have said. Things that we have said that we would rather not have said. <laughs> I, I, I can still notice a slight tinge of remorse um, over somebody who um, wasn't particularly close to me but uh, she died uh, quite a number of years ago and there were a number of occasions when I wasn't quite as mindful and quite as sensitive and in tune as I, as I might have been and it still is something that uh, is there in my memory I mean I have worked at like, forgiving myself and, and so on and asked her for forgiveness but um, what it did for me was just to, to uh, really highlight the importance of, of how we live life in relation to one another. I found it particularly when I was looking after, or particularly one of the old ladies uh, at Amrawati, uh, the one who 
I was closest to and uh, spent most time with. And um, as I've mentioned, she was actually quite quite difficult, <laughs> quite a handful. Um, and we used to have kind of minor tiffs. <laughs> you know, I'd be cleaning her room and she would complain about something and I would make some nasty remark and then she'd be really upset and start sulking and then we'd have to go off to puja or something. And one of the um, things that I, I, I made a very strong determination when I was looking after her that I would never um, separate from her um, was anything unresolved. So if we had a tiff and say we were walking along to I don't know, the meditation, um, I would always make a point of apologizing or trying to resolve the, the difficulty. And it was actually quite um, exacting because often resolving it meant kind of swallowing a bit of pride. Um, and it was the kind of thing I, I wouldn't always naturally have chosen to do. <laughs> You know, I might have chosen to hold a grudge and kind of let her stew in her own juice for a day or two. <laughs> but knowing that she could die at any time and knowing that I have, if I had done that, that there would have been a sense of regret, um, I made it a practice to be particularly careful um, in the way that I related to her. And I'm really very, very grateful that I did that because... Um, you know, as I described at one point, the time of her death, although it was extremely sad, it was also very joyous, and there was no sense of regret. I really had a sense that I'd really done the very best I could. As I mentioned in an earlier talk, I did have some quite powerful uh, images. This was earlier on uh, when I was looking after her of you know, doing the most terrible things to her. Um, and as I also said in the talk at the time, I took this to be a sign that actually I needed a bit more rest. I needed to take care of myself. And I say this because I'm aware that there are some of you here who are like, caring for elderly people. And um, just to really bear in mind the importance of taking proper care of yourself. You know, we can be so idealistic um, in what we should be and what we should do and what we should be able to do, what we should be able to manage, what our capacity should be, um, without really having the humility to acknowledge that actually we have limitations. We're not God, we're not Superman or Superwoman. <laughs> we're a, a human being um, who has very um, considerable needs ourselves. Certainly the person we might be caring for has very obvious needs, but we too have needs. And if we don't take proper care of ourselves, we're not really going to be able to take proper care of anybody else. I'm very impressed in, in Britain, and I'm not sure how it is here, but in Britain they have um, ways of providing like respite care if one's looking after somebody who's, say, terminally, terminally ill then um, the person can actually spend time in a hospice while the relatives um, are able to have some time when they're not actually engaged in like 24-hour care. And this seems to be um, a very wonderful thing to be able to provide that kind of support so that people can uh, manage to, to take care of um, those they love in the way that they would want to, rather than either having to um, having them be cared for full time in an institution, which is sometimes necessary, or uh, trying to do the whole thing oneself and just burning oneself out, and and uh, the whole thing ending up a complete mess. Sometimes there's no choice, in which case one just has to do the best one can and to keep reminding oneself that one's doing the best one can 
and if there are times that one doesn't measure up to one's high ideals, just to recognize that one's doing the very, very best one can, and that the willingness to even try is an extraordinary um, offering. So to really honor that in oneself. If one can uh, arrange things so that one can have the rest, the um, support that one needs in order to continue uh, on a long-term basis, then by all means that's something that I would uh, really recommend. So to be very um, uh, honest about one's needs, honest to oneself, and to be willing to really uh, consider carefully how one can take proper care of oneself if one is in that situation. It's not selfish to look after oneself. (laughs) Or maybe one could say it is selfish, but it's good to be selfish. There's different ways of putting this. As far as uh, reflecting on our own mortality, as I said, there's often not much of an incentive to do this. And this is why we need to use uh, to really reflect when, when somebody that we know dies. It's actually just to really con- to recognize that this is something that can happen to us too at any time. I had... Uh, the extraordinary, um, I went on pilgrimage in India um, a couple of years ago and uh, this was, I just turned 50 and I decided that uh, one thing that I would like to do to kind of mark that um, milestone, if you like, was to uh, go um, to make a pilgrimage to the Buddhist holy places. I hadn't been particularly interested in doing that earlier on in my Buddhist life just because um, it took me a while to really develop a sense of appreciation and devotion uh, to the Buddha. You know, and, uh, but by the time I was, well, it was actually I decided to go when I, uh, a few years before, I was thinking it would be good to go on pilgrimage and I thought, well, when I'm 50 I'll go on pilgrimage. <laughs> and uh, so just about a month after my 50th birthday I set off and uh, it was a very very wonderful experience Um, it was very lovely just to feel very close to the Buddha and to uh, actually be in the places that um, I'd read about, heard about back when it said that at one time the Lord was dwelling at Sawati uh, in the Jetta's Grove and at Pindika's monastery Uh, these were just words to me and to actually go and and visit this place and to experience the kind of uh, culture in which he lived and even just have a sense that in fact India where the Buddha lived is actually quite a chilly place a lot of the time (laughs) I'd always thought of the Buddha living in a hot country uh, but actually during the winter months it's quite chilly Uh, so this was a very important part of the pilgrimage but I think the most significant event that happened was something it uh, was quite extraordinary um, and it involved a whole chain of coincidences like, like those of you who have travelled in India will know that things don't usually work out the way that you plan <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this journey was uh, no exception we were given all kinds of well, we wanted to get to Lumbini, actually, and people were telling us about buses. There would be a luxury coach from Patna. So go to Patna, take a luxury coach to Lumbini. So we went to Patna, and they said, there's no luxury coach to Lumbini. What you want to do is to take a train to Varanasi, and from Varanasi to go to Gorakhpur, and from Gorakhpur to go to Lumbini. You'll get a bus. Anyway, it was, we, were, we were kind of sent around a bit. <laughs> 
And on the train from Varanasi to Gorakhpur, we were, it was quite a crowded train, and at one point there were two seats, three seats, vacant opposite us. I was travelling with a, with a lay woman companion, and one of the ways that people reserve their seats on a train is to, to throw something through the window and uh, onto an empty seat, and then they kind of... It, it can take quite a while to get onto a train in India. <laughs> so this is what they do in order to, to reserve their seats, so... Uh, a couple of three three young men kind of tossed some exercise books or something through the window just opposite us. So my friend and I we kind of arranged, put them on the seats and made sure that the, the seats were reserved for them because uh, Indian trains can be quite crowded. Anyway, they they got got on and, and onto the train and it set off and they sat opposite us and uh, one of them started looking at one of the other's palms. You know, they, they were talking in Hindi, so I couldn't understand, but they were obviously, he was obviously kind of uh, giving him a kind of the, the lowdown <laughs> and, uh, on, on his character or whatever. And uh, my friend who was called Mechi, which is actually Chinese for Chinese mushroom, which doesn't mean none, um, she and I, we, we couldn't resist kind of holding out our hands. <laughs> and uh, this uh, chap, kind of looked at, looked, looked at my hand and the first thing he said, he said, oh. he said, your lifeline's quite short. <laughs> so, he said, you'll, you'll, probably, you'll probably live to about 50. <laughs> and then he proceeded to tell me some other rather spot-on things that he couldn't possibly have known otherwise, unless he had a very powerful intuition. He just looked at my hand, he said, well, it's this, this, and this, and yeah, that means this. So I kind of gulped. And then he looked at my friend's hand and said, oh yes, you, you, you live to about 70. And then he kind of turned to each of us and said, well, you know, how old are you? So I kind of, <laughs> I looked him straight in the eye and said, 50. <laughs> And he looked me back and he said, very important time for you. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, those kind of things, you can't ignore them. I was actually very grateful, although in some ways it was shocking, but I was incredibly grateful because... um, you take it with a pinch of salt. Well, I did. Um, but it also brought a real sense of um, urgency into my practice. I thought, well, you know, maybe I am going to die at 50. If I were to die at 50, I mean, I had a, from that time, I think I had about nine more months before I was going to be 51. So I thought, well, you know, if, if I, you know, if the time of my death does come, what will I regret? not having done. So it really helped me kind of get my priorities straight. And there were certain kind of quite practical things that I wanted to do, which I, when I got back to England, I did, um, or began to do. Um, There were other things to do with just how I lived my life. And one of them was to do with just like living life fully. This is what I, I, I emphasize a lot. Uh, really using every moment, every experience that we have, even the unpleasant ones, um, as something that we can experience fully, that we can learn from. Another thing was just to be happy to enjoy life. Um, doesn't mean that I, there isn't suffering from time to time, but to really... Uh, try to avoid suffering unnecessarily. <laughs> seemed to me to be very important. And there are a few other things. For me, it was actually like having a a terminal illness without actually being ill, Uh, which was, you know, it was very nice to have the the vigour to be able to... um, consider these things and to uh, 
carry some of these things out uh, rather than actually waiting till um, I was very, very ill or something. Like for many people, it's um, they don't have <coughs> very much time or very much vigor to uh, finish off their business. It also was an opportunity to kind of say thank you to the people who'd helped me in my life. Uh, things like that. And to really enjoy my monastic life. Interesting happen, thing happened like um, about a month before, less than a month before I turned 51, was that I actually did get very ill and almost died. Uh, which I think quite, well, I, I, I hadn't actually told many people about our encounter with the palmist. It's, the kind, it's not the kind of thing you tell people somehow. <laughs> but uh, when, I, when I was taken off to hospital with this illness, the person who'd been traveling to me in India kind of whispered something to one of the novices and immediately the whole community knew. <laughs> and uh, so there was some real concern at that time. The interesting thing about being incredibly ill like that is that uh, what struck me, I mean I, I didn't actually realize how ill I was until after the crisis had passed. I mean, I did have a, I must have had some kind of intuition about it because I remember lying there and I'd had a, a slight injury and uh, I thought, well, shall I, this was some months before and I thought, well, I'm in a hospital or with doctors and nurses. I wonder if I should mention this injury. <laughs> and then the next moment the thought was, well, if I die, it, it won't really matter about the injury. <laughs> And I realized that, you know, if I died, that actually it wouldn't really matter that this body wasn't completely perfect and that it had things that were wrong with it and that you know, they weren't particularly beautiful about it or that there were unfortunate things about it. Uh, that was quite a, quite a nice thought. You know, if I die, it won't really matter. After uh, when I was recovering, um, I asked the sister who was with, with me um, in the in the hospital. I, and I was just kind of curious to know, um, like, when my um, my mother she's very intuitive, and uh, she just happened to ring the monastery on the day I was taken off to hospital. I think the monk who answered the phone was actually quite put on the spot because he knew I'd been taken to hospital. He knew I was pretty sick, and uh, so of course he had to tell her. And she eventually kind of caught up with me in one of. I, I went to several hospitals actually, and she eventually caught up with me in one of the hospitals. And Sister Tanya, you know, suggested that the doctor come and have a word with her. And I, I said to Tanya, I said, "Well, you know, what, what did the doctor say?" And uh, she said, "Well, uh, it was actually a. I don't know if I should." Well, yeah. It was actually a hemorrhage, a brain hemorrhage that I had, and she said, the doctor said, well, there's a, there's a lot of bleeding, we don't know where it's coming from, it could be fatal. And uh, when I heard this afterwards, I was actually quite shaken, and to realise just how near the edge I'd been. So it was all, all in all, it was quite a powerful, powerful learning, powerful experience. And, and, as, I, and as I said, the thing, one of the things that really struck me was how easy it would have been just to slip away without even knowing. It just actually felt like nothing very much at all. And what I remember about the time was just people coming and saying, do you know where you are? <laughs> <laughs> and somehow or other I, I knew each time, you know, first of all it was um, King Edward's Hospital and then it was St. Richard's Hospital and then eventually it was Southampton Hospital. <laughs> you know, do you know what day it is? It was Sunday. And then sort of in the wee small hours, it began to get a bit hazy. Well, is it Sunday or is it Monday? <laughs> and then it, I really blew everybody's mind. They said, do you know who the Prime Minister is? <laughs> and I got that one right too.
anyway, I recovered, and I'm here. But what all this has done is really just sharpen up a sense of um, priorities. You know, what is really important? And a sense of gratitude uh, and appreciation for this opportunity, for this human existence, and a real interest in making the very, very best possible use of it, knowing that things could change at any time. So I share this because um, I realize that for, for many people, they don't have... Uh, they don't meet a palmist on pilgrimage in India who tells them that they could die that very year. <laughs> um, but the fact is that any of us could die any minute. I don't say this to bring a sense of dread or worry. Uh, like I suppose if if I hadn't been practicing when I met the palmist, I could have. It could have been. Um, uh, quite damaging perhaps you know, I could have been really worried about about this um, prognosis this uh, what he'd said you know, as it was, it was just interesting <laughs> so my, my, my encouragement is just to, to, to see this fact of our mortality as just being interesting our aging process of being interesting when we get sick to, to take an interest um, in the sickness even the Buddha got old got sick on a number of occasions and eventually died even all of the enlightened beings since that time with one possible exception <laughs> uh, got old, got sick got and, and died I was telling some of you the other day about the very touching description of the Buddha in his old age. And, uh, you know, how sort of painful his body was and, uh, and how he was very much aware that his faculties were, were failing. You know, he couldn't see so well, hear so well. All of the senses were, um, weren't working so well. And uh, you know, he actually kind of talks about old age as, you know, as, as something really sordid, maker of ugliness. Shame on you, sordid age, maker of ugliness. And just how, you know, even if you live to a hundred years, that uh, you, you can't escape just the, the decay of the body. Just, you can't escape it. And, and the eventual death, passing, dying of the body. So we can take this as an incentive to, to live life carefully, to live life fully, uh, with appreciation, not to waste this opportunity that we have. doesn't mean that we're always going to enjoy it, it doesn't mean it's always going to be pleasant, uh, but I suspect that what each one of you will find is that the more fully you live life, even though sometimes it's pleasant, uh, unpleasant I should say, sometimes it's pleasant, uh, the more wonderful um, it is. Because we're no longer afraid of these things. We're able to, um, having perhaps been through a phase of actually acknowledging our fear, uh, and one of the things I've found that with, with, with mindfulness practice, actually, I, I, can, I can be present with my fear. Um, just seeing it as part of life. We don't have to feel ashamed or 
frightened of fear or want to avoid uh, the, the fearful things that happen, uh, try to just smooth it over with some kind of distraction, we can actually be present with fear, we can learn from it. And life takes on a much, a much richer quality. It also helps us to appreciate one another in a very different way. <clears throat> sure, we still get irritated with each other because uh, people are irritating, let's face it, sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes we're irritable, let's face it. You know, we can't always be sweet and gentle and equanimous. I mean, we know we should be, but we can't always feel like that. Sometimes we're irritable, sometimes we're grumpy, sometimes other people drive us nuts. But when we notice that we're irritable, we recognize that, like I, I, I have an expression, I sort of say things like, you better stay away from me, I, I'm very dangerous right now. <laughs> um, just recognizing that we're irritable, recognizing that we could blow up, that we could say something unfortunate. But with mindfulness, um, there's, a, there's a kind of a resolution just to be a little bit more careful, a little bit careful. It's like, like a, a simile I like to use, it's like when you're driving and when the traffic conditions or the weather conditions are very dangerous, um, you take extra care. You know, if there are a lot of idiots on the road, which there are sometimes, particularly on a Saturday night, say, um, rather than blaming them and saying that they shouldn't be like that, or getting irritated and frustrated with them for being, you know, for driving irresponsibly, the appropriate response is to take extra care in how we drive and how we, um, yeah, in, in how we drive and how we respond, and to be extra vigilant. And in the same way, if we're feeling irritable, like if the conditions are such that we're feeling quite raw, or if um, we're with people who are particularly irritating, <laughs> then um, what I find it helpful is just to, to see that as, as, as a kind of incentive to be particularly careful. If we blow it, if we uh, say or do something unfortunate, And we have to learn how to forgive ourselves. This is quite important, in fact, because um, what can happen is if we, we blow it, if we behave in a, an unfortunate way, is that it can just increase our sense of fear that we'll do the same thing again, that we'll repeat the same mistake. And uh, sure enough, when we're in a similar situation, the chances are that we will repeat the same mistake. If we can uh, actually forgive ourselves, make peace with whatever it is that has happened, then we come to a similar situation again. And rather than being fearful of repeating the same mistake, what I've found is that um, I'm much more able to just relax, to um, you know, to recognize the danger and to know that if I'm tense, the likelihood, if I'm tense and fearful of making the same mistake, the likelihood is that I will make the same mistake. If I just am, am, am very mindful and just relax and recognize that it's a dangerous situation, a difficult situation, but that the more at ease I am in myself, the less likely um, there is that I'll um, blow up or whatever tumble into the same old pattern. The other interesting thing is that if it's in a, like if it's in a particular relationship, um, is that the more relaxed we are, the more relaxed the other person can be. I noticed this, like in, in Sangha life is wonderful for noticing these things, because um, 
one of the things I, I used to notice is that it, it was a particular uh, person in the community is that um, we could very easily um, set each other off <laughs> and um, so you know I would sit down and they would look at me in a particular way or they would make some remark and I would start getting defensive and so I'd say something a little bit off and then they would kind of say something a little bit off and the whole thing would escalate and I decided to experiment to do this little experiment and so I was sitting down beside this person and then it, they made some remarks that um, my habitual response would have been to kind of tense up and maybe say something back but the remark was made you know a slight, a slight kind of jab and so I relaxed I went to my breath I went to my belly I put my shoulders down I relaxed my face and I just relaxed I can't remember if I actually smiled, but I, I relaxed anyway. And the interesting thing that happened was that that was the end of it. I relaxed, they relaxed. That was it. So I'd really recommend that you try that with particularly difficult relationships. It might not work immediately, and they might kind of have another go at you, and so you might have to relax some more. <laughs> but sooner or later they run out of steam. Because you're not actually feeding that tension, that aggression. It's, I think um, it's kind of based on a martial arts principle. I mean, I think martial arts work on the same kind of principle. Where rather than... Um, responding aggressively to the aggressor you kind of use that energy um, to throw them I mean I wasn't intending to throw this person but um, to kind of like to disarm to take the steam away if, if for some reason they, you know, it really doesn't work and they still remain hot and bothered and angry at least you've maintained a sense of calm and equilibrium at least you haven't got all fired up at least you haven't tumbled into an angry, averse reaction. I haven't actually spoken about the hindrances as a kind of single talk, but it's interesting that like, the simile that the Buddha uses for aversion, um, he said it's like being sick. You know, if, if you're full of anger and aversion, it's like a disease. And uh, so, using, you know, with this example, at least you haven't got the sickness. You know, at least it hasn't contaminated you. You've been able to stay calm and even and uh, um, healthy, you know, inwardly healthy. We have to see it like a game or like a skill or like a craft because we're not always going to succeed. As with any skill, it takes time. Sometimes we'll get it right, sometimes we'll get it spot on and we'll feel really good. And then, of course, the next time we fail. <laughs> Um, so, you know, to, to see that it's a gradual practice, practice makes perfect little by little. You know, use these ways of encouraging yourself in, in uh, developing this practice. But it's something I, w I would really recommend because you never know when it's going to be the last meeting. And it's really unfortunate if um, there have been angry words. We've, we've hurt each other and I'm sure all of you have experience of this and um, you know, all of you know how unfortunate it is so this is, this is a technique that perhaps will, will help um, to avoid repeating the same patterns you know, people, are, human beings are hugely irritating even when they don't mean to be. In fact, sometimes especially when they're trying hard not to be. <laughs> and so we can expect to be irritated, you know, particularly with, you know, people that we're particularly close to. And uh, so anything, any, you know, just to use our mindfulness practice in any way that we can to uh, recognize, 
you know, when we're irritable and either just to step right outside the situation if we can, take ourselves for a walk, you know, sit among the trees, watch the squirrels, or if you're in a city, you know, if you have, uh, I, I, I don't know, I, I find talking to plants very helpful if I have plants in my room or arranging flowers, or just do, do find something to do that you really enjoy doing uh, that, that will take you away from the, um, the tense, tight uh, situation. If you can, and if you can't, then just do the very, very best you can. And be ready to think well of yourself for having done that, even if you fail. That was another of the things I decided to do when I nearly died, is to actually delight in my own goodness and to give up thinking I'm an awful person. (laughs) I just saw what what a kind of miserable pastime it was to um, keep blaming myself. I decided to actually enjoy this human life, this human being, and to see that it was good. (laughs) There are good things it's done and to make much of that. And each one of you have done lots of good things. Just the, the, the effort to, to come and spend time on retreat, the effort to endure through the miserable, wretched, horrible uh, mind states that I'm sure many of you have had to endure through, the fact that you're still here, is, is a cause for celebration. <laughs> Even if you're not utterly perfect, even if you're not fully enlightened yet, <laughs> you know, that there's this sincere, humble, determined effort and aspiration to move towards that is something that is worthy of appreciation, worthy of respect by yourself. So I offer this for your reflection this evening.